Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 24. The idea of being signed to Jive had all but disappeared in my head, though Rue worked feverishly to stay in contact with Jeff. He figured that he had made enough of an impression on him to possibly snag a low-level A&R position and then influence Jeff to sign me. Maybe Rue had a point. Either Jeff was a master of having vague and emotionless conversations, or he asked Rue's opinion of me because he found value in it. I tried to stay positive. I mean, even Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team, so who cared that Jeff had passed? There were a ton of other labels, but my confidence was damaged and that made writing braggadocio rap songs tough. I had no arrogance, no cockiness, and I didn't feel like the uber everything. The perspective I was supposed to be writing raps from was no longer my actual perspective. The inspiration started to die. Rue and I continued doing the same thing we had been doing in as many different ways as we could. But he started seriously considering moving back to North Carolina again in hopes of salvaging what was left of his relationship with his now ex-girlfriend Nikki. He began taking responsibility for the breakup, claiming that it was his fault for sacrificing the relationship for music. I felt bad for him, but I wasn't exactly thrilled with the idea of him leaving me behind in New York by myself to rot. We masked our feelings of despair and social interactions by contriving our lives. Per Rue's suggestion, we focused on selling the dream to everybody, especially those working in fields that related to what we were doing. We made it a point to appear happy, which was a huge chore for me. When we were out and friends asked, yo, what's up with the music? We'd smile and say things like, you know we just met with Jive, right? As if we were revealing something that was on the horizon. Sure, it was cool that we even got in the door, but Jeff had passed. Then there came the day that Rue made a conscious effort to start calling me what instead of Josh. We gotta start getting people to think of you as a star, he told me furiously. I knew the way he was feeling made sense, and it wasn't that big of a deal, but somehow, it still felt demoralizing. With every lie, half-truth, and exaggerated tale we told, I became more and more jaded at the image we were attempting to portray and my purpose in life. We still had some bells to ring. Our college friend Kai worked in programming at BET. Rue worked hard to convince her that supporting us from the ground up was a great investment of her time. And though she tried to get There It Goes played, she failed because the powers that be didn't know the song. We had to settle for the Never instrumental playing behind a commercial for Spring Bling. It was cool at first until I remembered that I didn't make beats, so even my instrumental wasn't my instrumental. Rue and I were helpless and our lack of success sent each of us into our respective defense modes. Where Rue would think, we gotta just keep working, my reaction would be to shut down and do nothing. Instead, I'd spend entire weekends alone, surfing the internet, watching TV, and eating massive amounts of Papa John's. While Rue tried to numb the pain by dating, I remained true to the credo I had adopted years before and vowed to stay single until I died. My gluttony and exile was in the name of focus and commitment to my dreams, but it wasn't really what I wanted. I told myself that it was okay if I died alone because it seemed like the cool rapper shit to say and think. I didn't put any stock into romantic relationships, which in turn often fueled my misogynistic rap lyrics. It was kind of a vicious cycle. The more I passed time alone staring at my computer, the more I started to think about the video. I watched it over and over and focused only on things I didn't like. 
I rewound scenes I hadn't agreed to and would pause on facial expressions or hand movements that I thought made me look stupid or uncool. Rue and I initially believed that we had a good video that would impress people at record labels, but I increasingly saw it more like a low-budget version of the types of visuals they were making at labels, so why would they be impressed? There it goes congealed in my mind as a piece of shit and a symbol of how we had wasted our chance at making something great. A saving grace of my life at that point was having Melvin in New York. I lacked any real drive to make music, which was such a major part of our relationship, but I focused on getting together with him as much as I could anyway. Hanging out with him felt like home. Being around his wife and kids gave me hope. Or maybe some shred of my being still did want to be creative. We'd get together every week or two and I'd record anything I could. Sometimes they were full-fledged songs, other times it was just a freestyle over an instrumental that inspired me. For the first time since we met in 1992, Melvin stopped charging me to record. He was never one for the warm and fuzzies, but I guess we had grown too close for that. I continued to force music out the best way I could, but still found myself at a crossroads. The music I was recording was still pretty good, but it couldn't shake the feeling of moderate depression. Most of my time was spent trying to make money as an apartment broker in the city. Though I was just scraping by, I worked my way up the pyramid-like pay structure and began earning larger percentages on each deal. I was still broke and when I'd file taxes every year, I'd owe the government thousands of dollars I didn't have. The real estate rental market was saturated with agents that did the same thing I was. We all fought for scraps, but it wasn't enough for me to maintain even a modest lifestyle. Eventually I ran out of money just around the time that Rue and I had depleted our initial Jimmy Joshua investment. I had pride, but I was out of options and had to resort to calling my father to ask for financial assistance. Even though it had been a few years since I had done so, I knew it would be met with resistance. It took me a few hours to work up the courage to call because I was too emotionally frail to deal with it. My dad is incredibly successful in his field. He's a research scientist who had made a name for himself with a discovery that's led to the creation of dozens of medications and has saved millions of lives. He skipped three grades and finished Columbia Medical School when he was just 23 years old. He decided he wanted to be a doctor when he was five and worked his ass off to do it. I decided I wanted to be a rapper when I was 12 and had yet to make as much as a dollar off of it. I knew he wasn't pleased with my life choices, but maybe he realized it could be worse. I had no police record, drug habit, illegitimate children, or face tattoos. I never asked if he thought I was a failure, but he'd been quite vocal my entire life about how important it was to have a career and work hard at it, so I felt like I didn't have to. He never told me I should do something else, but he never championed my gumption for moving to New York City to be a rapper either. That was until I had to call him for help. Hey dad. Hey guy, what's cooking? Nothing much. Great, how's work? Um, not good. Why is that? I explained the real estate market's decline, the oversaturation of real estate agents and how it was affecting me. He replied, that doesn't sound good. It was an understatement. Well, listen, I took a deep breath. I'm sort of in a bind. I don't have enough money to pay rent this month, but I should be okay in a week or two when I get paid on this deal. He was silent for a few seconds to the point where it became uncomfortable. Hello? I replied, thinking that maybe I had lost him. Damn it, Josh! My father scoffed. I just don't understand what you're doing with yourself. If real estate is plan A and music's plan B, I hope to God there's a plan C. My dad had had enough. He always had an opinion and was never one to hold back for the sake of other people's feelings. He had to be a father, but I needed to be a rapper. First of all, I said, 
Real estate is not plan A. Music is, and I have no plan B. Music is what I do. Real estate is just something that pays my bills. Well, apparently not, he said sternly. I just don't understand. All of my friends and colleagues always talk about their children being doctors and lawyers and having successful careers in fields like finance. And somehow, with the exception of David, none of the rest of you seems to be able to get it together. Now I was angry. It's true that I was in my late 20s and wasn't even making an acceptable salary. It was also true that three of four of my siblings hadn't followed a traditional career path. And it was also true that the place where I lent the majority of my focus yielded no money and plenty of stress and disappointment. But I wasn't stupid. I knew that what I was doing might not work out. Still, my dad managed to put greater pressure on me in the 30 seconds than I had put on myself in the past 10 years. He was my father. He was probably right, but it was making me feel like less of a man. Well, I'm sorry if my life doesn't give you bragging rights around the office, but this is what makes me happy, and this is what I was born to do. You say it makes you happy, but I haven't seen you happy in months, so maybe you want to think a little bit harder about your priorities. I hung up on him, threw the phone across the room and punched the wall. I knew he was right, and it made it all the more hard to hear. I hated arguing, and I hated getting this upset. Most of all, I hated to hear the disappointment in my father's voice. But he was right. I was a miserable fuck. I had nothing, and nothing to look forward to. And now, even my family was starting to notice. The jig was up. He called me a few days later, but I didn't answer. He left a voicemail telling me that he'd put a check in the mail and assured me that I'd figure it out eventually. And in some weird psychological effort to prove him wrong, I dedicated a little bit more of my time and energy to regaining financial stability. I ran myself ragged through the streets of Manhattan, showing apartments to overprivileged white kids in search of an apartment in a neighborhood that wasn't, quote, sketchy, which I later learned basically meant no blacks or Hispanic people lived there. They were making salaries upwards of $100,000 out of college, and their parents paid their rents. These were the same parents that often called me to ensure that I wasn't going to show their children anything north of 90th Street. The same parents who, most likely, always talked about their children being doctors and lawyers and having successful careers in fields like finance. Along with the flexible hours, the thing I enjoyed most about being a broker was the opportunity to learn every inch of Manhattan. At some point I'd seen nearly every corner of the island from the FDR to the West Side Highway, Inwood to the Financial District. One day after a few hours of showing apartments in blustery winter weather, I found myself on West 25th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue where Jive was located. I laughed to myself when I realized it. I wasn't sure why, but I did. I saw Chris Lighty walking towards me and I panicked. I couldn't imagine that he would remember my face and I wasn't sure he'd notice me in the first place, but I went into defense mode because what if he did? I was wearing work clothes and didn't look like a rapper. I had to hide. God forbid if by some stroke of bad luck he saw me, I'd be ruined. I felt ridiculous, but the image-conscious devil on my other shoulder took over and a wave of anxiety washed over my body. I jumped into the street and ducked behind a parked Ford Expedition so Chris wouldn't see me. I remembered that he worked at Jive now and made a serious mental note not to ever show my face on that block again unless I was dressed in my rapper clothes. What the hell had my life become? A few nights later, dressed business casual, I left work and headed uptown to 142nd Street to get a haircut. Dave was working in a new shop and my lack of a shape up made me look a lot like how I was feeling internally. He told me he would be there by 5pm so I left work at 5.30 to give him time to arrive. 
Unbeknownst to me, Dave had gotten into an argument with his son's mother and still hadn't gotten to the barber shop when I walked in just after 6 p.m. As I waited, my mind rested until it was interrupted by the sound of the shop door opening, loud greetings and slapped hands. I tilted my head a bit so I could see around the mirrored divider in the middle of the shop. I couldn't see all of the face, but I instantly recognized the voice. Holy shit, it was Jeff Sledge. I managed to temporarily escape the anxiety that attacked me on 25th Street a few days prior, but somehow it managed to catch up with me. I grabbed the latest issue of XXL magazine that sat on the chair next to me. I held it up over my face unnaturally and opened it like I was engulfed in an article. I couldn't let Jeff see me like this, but I knew it was inevitable that he would. Besides, he had to be coming to get his haircut by Dave. I panicked again. I began considering whether or not to sneak around the other side of the room divider like a ninja, but I couldn't move quickly enough to make a decision. Jeff started coming my way. My stomach dropped and I began to sweat. I put the magazine even higher over my face and slouched down in my seat. As soon as I could feel Jeff within proximity, I heard a door open, felt a gust of wind, and then heard it close. Jeff had gone to the bathroom, which was about five feet to the right of where I was sitting. I knew that it bought me some time. What do I do now? Do I just leave? Shit! My mind raced. I froze in my chair and could hear Dave walking through the door and joking with all the barbers whose stations were to the front of the shop. Like a shark in the water, Jeff walked out of the bathroom and towards the front of the shop to greet Dave. He didn't see me, but I wasn't in the clear yet. He and Dave exchanged pounds and Jeff let him know that he'd be getting a haircut from one of the other barbers because he was in a rush. He sat down in the barber's chair that was near the door to the shop and on the opposite side of the divider from where I was sitting. It wasn't a solid wall. There were rectangular shaped cutouts that probably made the shop seem less small. He'd be staring right at me as long as he was paying attention. I prayed that he wouldn't. What up, Big Josh? Dave said as he came towards me. Chillin'. I said quietly while still hiding behind the magazine. Dave began unloading his things and setting up his station. He looked at me perplexed while cleaning his clippers with a small brush. The fuck you doing, man? Nothing. Just chillin'. I replied while trying my hardest to appear normal. Uh, okay, well, you got one in front of you, Dave said as he motioned for a younger client to come sit in a chair. For the moment, I was safe, and halfway through the haircut, Jeff finished and walked out without saying goodbye to Dave. It was only at that moment that I felt comfortable enough to drop the magazine from in front of my face. I saw Dave looking at me through his peripheral. I waited until I was on the subway before I began stressing about what had just occurred. I kept my stress at bay during my haircut, but even then I knew that it was imminent. This time it wasn't as simple as, what the fuck am I doing? It was deeper. In the past 72 hours, I had hidden behind an SUV to dodge Chris Lighty and all but put a lampshade over my head in the barbershop to ensure that Jeff Sledge wouldn't notice me. And all because who I really was wasn't cool enough for me to get signed. I had to pretend that I didn't have a day job, that I was a superhero that surrounded myself with models and drank Cristal by day then went to the studio at night. I started to wonder if my real life was the problem. Maybe I wasn't committed enough. Should I quit my job? Should I tattoo both my arms up so I could never have a common man's career again? Maybe then I'd be viewed as a star that was worthy of a precious record deal. Melvin always warned me about getting too committed to my backup plan. That was the very reason why I was committed to being single for the rest of my life. Maybe he was right. Maybe this was the intangible, why I hadn't made it yet. I didn't know the answer, but questioning my life was starting to feel like my life's work, and that is a bad place to be.
A week later, Rue told me that he had set up an interview for me with a startup rap magazine out of Arizona called Expose. I got a call from someone named Vanessa, and though it would yield little to no exposure, it would be a good place to practice doing interviews, so I took it seriously. She gave me a small spiel and then began firing questions at me. So, your name is what's-his-name, right? I confirmed. How do you spell that? W-H-U-T-S-I-Z-N-A-I-M, I said. Oh, okay, that's cute. And where are you from? Durham, North Carolina. The interview seemed like a cakewalk. And what's your real name? She said. What? Your real name? What is it? She asked. Is that really important? I said. Vanessa became dumbfounded at my abrupt defensiveness towards such a simple query. It's Josh, but I prefer you didn't include my name in the interview. Um, okay, no problem, she said nervously. So how old are you? Um... I paused for three whole seconds as I was again taken aback by her line of questioning. Let's just say I'm in my late 20s, I said apprehensively, because I didn't want her to know that I was less than a year away from turning 30. As the questions turned more obvious, I answered them without much thought, unable to get my mind off the feeling of having to conceal both my given name as well as my age. Some of my answers were ones that Rue and I had formulated, like when I described my music as East Coast rap with a down south swagger. But others came from the heart when she asked me what I felt the problems were with today's music. Back in the 80s, rappers did it because it was a culture. Now, it's too calculated, too Hollywood. Got it, so you're not feeling any of the commercial stuff. I knew then that I had talked myself into a corner. No, of course I do. I don't want my stuff to be considered underground. I just feel like a lot of artists struggle to be themselves. If you're hip-hop, don't say you're hip-hop because people should already know that. Just make good music, you feel what I'm saying? But the truth is that I barely knew what I was saying. When the article came out, Vanessa painted a great picture of me. She even described me as genuinely humble. I was glad that I didn't come off as a bumbling idiot with disjointed answers or like an asshole because of my aversion to her simple questions about my real name and age. She obliged my request to leave out my real name and listed my age as late 20s. I felt super corny to have to pay attention to simple details, but I was glad she didn't out me as a Jewish guy from a place that isn't known for rap who was probably past his prime. As our individual lives spiraled into lonely nothingness, the relationship between Rue and me was fraying. We had been the best of friends since college, but our personalities differed a bit. That wasn't usually an issue, but our differences could spark minor disagreements and heated arguments. Where Rue was used to conflict and almost welcomed it, I avoided it at all costs. When I got overwhelmed, I'd do nothing, where Rue would sit by candlelight, racking his brain for a solution of how he or we could be working harder to fix or change things. Every so often, he'd call me from his apartment and ask what I was doing. If I answered, it was because I was doing nothing, so his question became nothing more than a setup. Rue would get frustrated and often tell me things like, you need to be on MySpace friending people or on the phone with these DJs keeping your relationships up. It began to feel as though he were my boss and I began to resent him for it. But even when I wasn't feeling rebellious, I frankly didn't have it in me to do administrative bullshit. My job was to make music. I was tired of pretending like anything we had control of was going to change our fate. I had no desire to call people and try to be better friends with them so that they'd play my record more. I didn't want to scour social media for half-naked thoughts so I could add them to my friends list in hopes that thirsty males that like rap music would find me accidentally. It was a stupid plan and I wasn't there for it. 
This frustrated Rue to no end. In his mind, we just had to keep working, quote, until this shit pans out. It reached a point where the only thing we could agree on is that we were both fucking miserable. Ah yes, fucking miserable. It was a term that was thrown around a lot at 520 Crown Street over the years. When I'd go upstairs to his apartment on a Sunday, after spending an entire weekend by myself alone and wondering why I couldn't make it, I'd start a conversation with him that would end up with me teary-eyed and saying, dude, I'm fucking miserable. When Rue would have a few too many consecutive nights alone without a plan to strategize, he'd come down to my house, tell me he missed North Carolina and that he too was fucking miserable. Even though each knew that the other was telling the truth, we said it like it was mostly in jest. But now, I really was fucking miserable. I was lonely, I was broke, and I was unfulfilled. Each pitiful opportunity that came my way ended up being as pointless as all the others. Dealing with disappointments had become my lot in life, and I started to believe that I'd die alone, broke, and unsuccessful. It was a bummer, and I was a bummer. bummer.